Edie's Sustainability Uncovered podcast is hosted in partnership with Lloyds Bank. We're delighted to have Lloyds Bank involved as they support UK business in the transition to a more sustainable future. Businesses of all sizes have the chance to power and accelerate this transition and seize the huge opportunities presented by it. Lloyds Bank works with clients not only to help finance this transition, but also to understand the challenges they face and the business prospects they look to capitalise on. To find out more, search Lloyds Bank Sustainability. Lending is subject to status. Hello and welcome to the ED podcast broadcast in partnership with Lloyds Bank. It's the week ending Friday 7th July and this is Sustainability Uncovered, the show for anyone and everyone working in or passionate about sustainability and climate action. Coming up on today's show, we'll learn about taking the just transition from theory to reality with the experts from our podcast partners, Lloyds Bank. In sustainability, we need to intentionally practice that possibilism in our day-to-day work and proceed on the basis that we can and will achieve these big ideas like the just transition, even even if it's not been done before. The Green Finance Institute fills us in on all the latest about the highs and lows of the UK's green finance policy-making journey. So to deliver the level and the quality of growth needed to support a prosperous and sustainable future, we need a new system. And last but by no means least, Chibus Capital give us a behind-the-scenes look at the venture capital ecosystem for greener agriculture. You know, according to the UNFAO, the global food system today is responsible for about a third of the world's greenhouse gas emissions. Um, on top of that, global uh, ecosystems and biodiversity. So we've, we've got a lot to do and a, a lot to fix. All of that and more is coming up in this week's episode of Sustainability Uncovered. So yes, hello and welcome along to Sustainability Uncovered. It's Edie's deputy editor, Sarah George here, ready to bring you some of the most inspiring and exciting sustainability and climate action stories from across the world. And as you may have gathered from the introduction to this episode, our theme for this edition is finance. This episode is broadcasting on the week ending Friday 7th July 2023. And we're broadcasting it now because from next Monday, that's Monday the 10th of July, 2023, we're hosting a focus week dedicated to all things climate finance. For our focus weeks, you can expect written features, free to download reports, exclusive interviews and online events. Our online event in this case taking place on Wednesday the 12th of July. More on that later. But for now, a little bit of an introduction and a little bit on why we have chosen this finance theme. You may be happy, depending on uh, your personal preferences, to know that this month's introduction will be free from your usual features of our content editor Matt Mace groaning about his back pain and our publisher Luke Nichols bemoaning that it's too loud to eat vegan snacks in the studio while we're on air. Um, And that is because I am alone in the studio today while the rest of the team squirrels away in preparation for Climate Finance Week. Or maybe they're just watching the Wimbledon. I'm not actually entirely sure whether this is a case of sustainability or strawberries that's keeping them apart from me. We've been hosting theme weeks on finance for several consecutive years now um, because, quite frankly, we have no hope of properly combating the climate and nature crises without leveraging unprecedented levels of finance. The UN estimates that there is a $4.1 trillion financing gap for nature through to 2050. Similarly, the World Resources Institute estimates that $5 trillion is needed annually from 2030 
to keep the world on course for that 1.5 degrees temperature limit set by the Paris Agreement. Beyond this obviously massive global urgent challenge, we also host our Climate Finance Weeks to foster dialogue. We really hope to get some more collaboration between the finance community and between the sustainability functions within businesses, helping them to understand each other's challenges and speak each other other's languages, all to scale up impact. With that in mind, I will try and seamlessly segue into our first guest interview for this episode. And our first of three interviews is with Chi Oranefo, who is Director of Sustainability and ESG Finance at Lloyds Bank. She's on hand to talk us how, as climate finance scales up, like I've mentioned it needs to, the process can be delivered with social justice and other aspects of environmental sustainability in mind. This is an approach known as a just transition approach. We know that most people are in support of a just transition and thinking about it in their professional lives, at least in theory. The challenge is now how we take this from theory to reality, and time is tight. So here to help us make sense of the just transition debate is Chi from Lloyds Bank with her expert insight. Chi, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day. Oh, absolute pleasure. Fabulous. And happy to be diving into this topic. Um, and I know it's a really big topic and I know we don't have a huge amount of time. Mm. Um, so I'm just going to dive straight into it. So for those who are listening who might be unfamiliar with the term of a, a just transition, how would you go about defining that? You're absolutely right. It is um, a new uh, concept for many people. And um, so it's good to start with definitions. And we all know what a net zero transition is. Um, so this is not about the what, it's more about the how we're going to get to net zero. It's um, a concept that evolved with the trade unions in the 1970s. And today we see it enshrined in a single line in the Paris Agreement from 2015. And that frames it in terms of the net zero transition, taking into account the workforce, the creation of decent work and quality jobs. And essentially, it's a principle that the net zero transition requires businesses to make changes that affect jobs and communities. And how do they then take those impacts into account and minimise them? Um, and a, a great example of that here and now is the uh, Inflation Reduction Act legislation that the US has used to frame around the green growth through jobs. And so the only thing I'd say is that, to my mind, just transition isn't only about climate, it could be about nature too. Um, but it, it's not a new concept. The respect of human rights and of the labour force is obviously enshrined in international law, enshrined in, in UK law. I think what's just different now is the approach of integrating these ideas. So climate justice, transition to net zero, biodiversity and effectively what we're trying to do is connect the UN SDG themes um, and try and address them at the same time instead of having different projects you know one that addresses carbon another one that addresses social and a third that addresses biodiversity ultimately you kind of need a whole systems approach um, if you want to create sustainable growth. Got it. And we all know that systems change doesn't come about without finance. You spoke there about the importance of the private sector in delivering a just transition. But for, for a bank specifically, what is the role there? How can banks help to leverage a just transition? I guess as the Paris Agreement definition suggests, just transition is a global concept. 
Um, climate justice is a global concept, so you need global solutions. So you know we we must remember that. But ultimately, Lloyd's Banking Group and Lloyd's Bank that I work for is predominantly UK focused. So we need to look at where we can make the most impact, and that is going to be in the UK. Um, so recognizing that finance is ultimately not neutral, we've started to think about our mission. So that has been helping Britain prosper for some time and using finance as a force for good. But we've also taken the last three years to develop our understanding of what that really means and moving it just from a purpose statement to being a purpose driven organisation. So a result of that analysis has meant that now our board consider the impact of all of their decisions on each purpose theme that we have and ultimately how that decision is going to help us deliver an inclusive and sustainable future. So the key themes for us are access to housing, um, greening the built environment, there's also regional regeneration, those are just three of the five that we have. Um, in, in practice, what does that mean? I think it means using our voice and leverage to promote a just transition. So raising awareness of the concept. So today is great speaking to you, um, asking our clients what they're doing in that space. I think we as a bank in Lloyds Bank, where I work, need to develop financing models that actually support a just transition. And so that could be, you know, just pure senior finance. It could be SLLs. It could be, you know, even green loans. But we could also be looking at new blended finance structures. Um, we could be looking at working with governments, um, philanthropic funds, crowdfunding platforms to find the different ways in which we can, can unlock a just transition. Um, and then I think the third thing for a bank like mine is really to practice what we preach ultimately. Um, so we need to respect our own labour force and human rights in our business. So we need to think about women. We need to think about minorities. Um, we need to think about people who are less physically abled. Um, and on Net Zero specifically, there's an upskilling piece with our staff. So we're running training programmes for them so they understand the issues in sustainability. Vis-a-vis -vis our clients, we need to support them and help them to understand how they could be negatively impacted and what we can do to support. So for us, that manifests very um, clearly in the retail side of our book, of the group's book, um, where we have a, a huge mortgage book. And the question there is, you know, how do we help our customers, the ones that can afford to retrofit their homes? And how do we help those that can't? And I think the answer around that is us developing new types of lending and also working with local authorities to find new solutions as well. So, you know, there is a very practical point, part of that. And then looking more out to industry, we have to think about how we engage with industry and how they we, we can support them really to develop technology, to develop a workforce with appropriate skills, because that's all part of our ecosystem. and We've worked with our clients to fund um, a manufacturing and technology centre. So that's an example of of what we can do or how we've seen our role. But obviously, we don't pretend to have all of the answers. These are just examples of what we're doing to address some market failures and, and to use our convening power as well. 
So you've given a lot of advice there for embedding just transition principles in a business in terms of being a bank. But there's also some advice there that I think that other companies could take, like having a strong purpose statement and upskilling mm. work. So if anyone else yeah. is listening and wants to know what they can do for their business strategy and day to day work, what would your advice be? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good question. Um, So one way of looking at just transition is to ask yourself where the possible injustices are in your net zero plan, which group of stakeholders are impacted and what can be done to ensure that they don't just survive net zero transition, but they thrive and benefit also. So do a materiality assessment, understand your stakeholders, your ecosystem. Um, and we have to do that in the knowledge that, you know, I just mentioned our retail mortgage book, the systems, the stakeholders, the impacts of the net, tra- net zero transition in that space are very different from those on the corporate side of the bank where I work. Um, and there are multiple sectors in the corporate side of the bank, from energy to commercial real estate, agriculture. The solutions are going to be very different in each of those sectors. Um, so that's the first thing I'd say. The, the second thing I think is, again, thinking about partnerships and dialogue. And you need to find opportunities to collaborate with others. So I cover real estate and housing. And in that space, we have partnered with Homes England and JLL to develop um, an accessible sustainability standards for SME builders, because we realised that a lot of them were struggling to engage with sustainability. And that's called Next Generation Core. Um, We have also sponsored um, the Regeneration Brainery charity, and that holds immersive days for school children. There's obviously going to be, we already predict, a huge deficit in terms of workers in the construction and real estate industry generally. So we're going around the UK to areas that might not ordinarily participate in the industry and teaching them about all of the opportunities that that are available to them. And then I think I also mentioned that we're working with governments and local authorities. We're working with energy companies and others to see if it's possible to develop projects and financing models that can address retrofit, for example. Um, But again, using that multi-layered approach, let's look if we can retrofit social housing, create regenerative effects, community and jobs all at the same time. And to do that, we've realised that one of the main benefits that we have is expertise and we have convening power. So we contribute that in order to try to see if we can get those projects off the ground. Um, I think if anyone was looking um, to find out more about this, then I would definitely recommend the work of the Grantham Institute. Um, Have a look at their website, the Impact Investing Institute. There are also um, organisations like Abundance Investments. I've mentioned the MTC Manufacturing and Technology Centres, the Startup Discovery School. They're just a few of the people that are in the space and attacking it from from different perspectives and could provide food for thought there. My last bit of advice probably would be to practice possibilism. And I do say that with a smile on my face, but, you know, ultimately the life in sustainability can seem quite overwhelming. There's so much to do, um, but ultimately you kind of have to be an optimist to do it um, because we think that we can improve things in some way. So recently a colleague pointed out to me that actually 
any investment that you make, any financial investment or otherwise, is ultimately an act of hope. You're hoping that you're going to be there tomorrow and that we're hoping that we're going to be in that tomorrow also. So in sustainability, we need to intentionally practice that possibilism in our day to day work and proceed on the basis that we can and will achieve these big ideas like the just transition, even even if it's not been done before. And so that's that's quite exciting to me and hopefully to other people as well. Yeah, I think it's good to have that note of positivity. We're talking at a time um, where just recently the UK government's own climate advisor said it's not on track for the net zero um, (laughs) transition, let alone the net zero transition. So I'm sure there are some fears going around about what could go wrong. So I wanted to get your opinion um, on, on, yeah, what's at stake here for the UK. And as you mentioned, we do need to work together to, as you say, practice possibility um, and look on the bright side and realise a better side. So I wanted to get your views on how we can collaborate to avoid the bad case scenarios. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, So I think we we all kind of know what happens when it goes wrong, because you just look back at previous transitions. I like to give the example of the north of England, because I think that's quite relatable to many people over the last century. Not that we were all here over the last century, but um, most people will be aware that you know we had an agricultural economy there. And then that shifted to a cotton industry and then to a coal based industry. And we talk about an industry, but really we're talking about a community, a community of people. And so when coal transitioned to gas. On the one hand, the UK's emissions, um, GHG emissions reduced by 50%, which is good. On the other hand, you had an industry that employed a million people, mostly men, that reduced to about 100 people about five years ago. And those jobs weren't replaced, really. And arguably, many of those communities are still recovering. And, you know, I think that's generally accepted and that nobody wants to repeat that. So, you know, fortunately, the government, I think, has made some positive statements. They do seem aware of this broader and more holistic picture that we probably need more certainty through you know, policy, industrial plans, um, a labour plan, you know, just to understand how we're going to reskill people and de- redeploy people. Ultimately, you need a regulatory infrastructure that recognises that um, the net zero challenge means tackling a broad range of interlinking issues and raising awareness with the public and smaller businesses and giving people agency to act is is going to be key in that that infrastructure, as it were. But I'm actually really positive, again, that whatever happens, we're going to do better this time. Um, But if we get it really right, if we establish business models and if we collaborate, raise consumer awareness, I think we'll create um, a demand for transition, net zero transition, that will catalyze the change within business itself and speed up the transition. And I think for me, the thing that I, I realize businesses maybe aren't thinking about when they look back at, if you were to look back at previous transit transitions, the reason that labour buy-in was so important was because when you didn't have your labour force and your communities buying into the transition, they created opposition to it. 
And ultimately, if people don't understand or haven't bought into the benefits of the transition for them and their communities, it's going to be harder to create or achieve net zero transition. So if net zero is your plan, then really just transition has to be part of your plan too. A big thanks to Chi for diving into some really complicated um, jargon and topics there and really helping us to set the scene for the rest of the podcast. And Lloyds Bank is actually one of several organisations who have put forward speakers for our online sustainable investment inspiration sessions. These are three webinars that are all taking place consecutively on the afternoon of Wednesday, 12th July 2023, and they're all free to attend. So you can tune in to hear from Lloyds Bank, JP Morgan, the Aldersgate Group, and many more great organisations. We'll be giving advice on topics like combining your climate-related and financial reporting, securing external finance for low-carbon projects, and navigating the changing green finance policy landscape. If this sounds like a bit of you, do join us. Full details are on the ED site under the events tab. So that's ed.net, then click events, webinars and masterclasses. For now though, it's just about time for a break. Join me after the jingle because we have two more great guest interviews to bring you in this episode of Sustainability Uncovered. You are listening to Sustainability Uncovered and you've just heard our conversation with Lloyds Bank. The ED team are delighted to have partnered with Lloyds Bank for this new podcast series as they support UK business in the transition to a more sustainable future. Businesses of all sizes have the chance to power and accelerate this transition and seize the huge opportunities presented by it. Lloyds Bank work with clients not only to help finance this transition but also to understand the challenges they face and the business prospects they look to capitalise on. To find out more, search Lloyds Bank Sustainability. Lending is subject to status. Hello and welcome back to Sustainability Uncovered, ED's show for anyone and everyone working in or passionate about sustainability and climate action. Once again, it's ED's Deputy Editor, Sarah George. I'm running the show solo today ahead of our Climate Finance Focus Week. If you're tiring of the sound of my voice, and I don't blame you because I know I definitely am, you'll be pleased to know that we have two more exclusive guest interviews for this episode, each helping me to pick apart a different part of the climate finance puzzle. And the first puzzle piece we'll be looking at in the second half is policy. We know that good policy making can help give investors the certainty to back clean technologies, climate adaptation projects and nature-based solutions. It can truly move the trillions, but bad policy making can kill investment dead and leave loopholes for continued investment in the unsustainable systems of the past, sometimes even with a fake greenwashing badge on the front. So here to help us envision a better policy landscape for green finance in the UK is Kelly Clark, who is a senior advisor at the Green Finance Institute, the GFI. She was on hand yesterday to talk me through all the latest with the UK's green finance strategy that was published in March, crucially the green finance taxonomy element. So here is that discussion with Kelly Clark at the GFI in full. Yes, so for this next part of the podcast, um, I'm going to be diving into all things green policy in terms of finance um, in the UK. And who better to speak to on this topic than a representative from the Green Finance Institute, the GFI. Um, I'm delighted to have their senior advisor, Kelly Clark, on the podcast with me today. So thank you very much for your time, Kelly. Thank you, Sarah. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I, I wouldn't dream of not having the GFI here, to be honest, for a podcast on climate finance. Um, 
they are sort of one of our go-to resources for all things to do with green finance policy-wise. Um, but for those who are listening and maybe aren't aware of the GFI, could we maybe start with uh, a, a brief introduction, please, Kelly? Yeah, of course. So the Green Finance Institute was established by the UK government in 2019 to accelerate the delivery of a greener future made possible by finance. Now, the current financial system was not designed to address the climate challenges that we face, and therefore it threatens economic stability now and in the future. So to deliver the level and the quality of growth needed to support a prosperous and sustainable future, we need a new system, one that channels and accelerates the flow of capital into net zero, creates jobs and security alongside thriving natural ecosystems. So changing the economic system to create a highly profitable, sustainable economy and future clearly doesn't happen overnight. It requires day-to-day delivery of outcomes that build an economic system fit for purpose from the ground up. And the leadership to influence that change and to shift patterns of interactions from the top down. Now, at the GFI, we are working to deliver that systems change on a sector by sector basis. We're positioned at the center of the market. We're led by bankers. The Green Finance Institute delivers the day to day outcomes that will build a new system from the ground up through our tested sectoral transition framework. So these outcomes and the Green Finance Institute's role in redesigning financial regulation, piloting public-private finance frameworks, and strengthening local delivery drives change and pattern shifts all of the interactions across the economy to deliver this net zero system that we're, we know we need to for the future. Yeah, we know that that's no small feat and that there's no one big announcement that can do that. Um, But when it comes to that top down leadership, obviously, a a key part of that is the government. Um, And we're speaking a few months out from essentially what was called Green Day, um, the the policy occurrence, not the ban, whereby the government published 3000 or so pages of new policy um, in one day. And one of those was an update to the green finance strategy. So I'd love to get your take on the strategy, Kelly. And I don't want to bring the tone down. So maybe we could start with the positives of the strategy. So when that came out, were there any aspects of it that you thought were promising and strong in terms of reforming the the financial system for, for a sustainable future? Thank you, Sarah. Well, let's just look, first of all, the first green finance strategy was focused on planning and targets. This second one is about delivering capital to finance our climate and nature goals. So this is really the the capital mobilization um, edit to the strategy. And at the Green Finance Institute, our pioneering strategy of positioning finance as the enabler of sectoral transitions is recognized as key to achieving net zero. So this strategy sets out a step change in how the UK will mobilize the finance needed to limit catastrophic warming and catalyze investment into nature. Now, one of the big shifts is to move away from uh, grant funding and towards financing. And in particular, we welcome the government's commitment to explore how blended finance models might be used to more strategically mobilize private finance to support our green objectives. 
So, Sarah, this is an addition to the policy signals um, that are in support of the taxonomy and the TNFD, um, both of which are welcome to shift the market in the right direction towards mobilizing capital, towards net zero and nature restoration. And the point on nature restoration is really critical. Um, as many of us may know, three quarters of the companies listed on the FTSE All Shares are entirely dependent upon nature in order to meet their own business objectives. And so that um, real understanding that both net zero and restoration and preservation of biodiversity and nature are what is critical and necessary in this next stage. I'm glad we talked about that because when we do talk about green finance or climate finance, a lot of the time it is on the energy side, but nature obviously, um, obviously crucial. And yeah, that's one thing where we've seen other organisations saying that the strategy that came out in March could maybe be built upon. Um, there's obviously some other bits and pieces that are missing from the strategy as well. For example, it didn't contain a finalised um, green finance taxonomy. So we've talked about the parts of the strategy that were good. Um, where do you think it needs to be built on going forward, Kelly? Well, again, I think that I would just like to really reiterate the point that we have an opportunity to go from funding this work with um, a limited pool of grants to really catalyze, catalyzing growth and capital mobilization through financing mechanisms. And that is both a policy and a capital uh, mobilization uh, integration, and it's critical. Um, and I think that if we were to take that approach, there is enough money in the private sector that can be deployed towards these projects and strategies, but we need the, the government to take a more active role in de-risking that capital. As I mentioned, it has been fantastic to see the government commit to deploying the kind of blended finance that has de-risked key technologies that we need to decarbonize. Now, we can see this approach working well in um, the UK in the case of renewable energy, specifically UK offshore wind industry, which now covers the energy needs of one third of British homes. So if we think about what we'd like to, to replicate and improve upon going forward, I think it's these kinds of partnerships that can be applied to different sectors, specifically to batteries for EVs. The UK is a fantastic grant landscape for battery companies, but as the scale-up phase of their growth, there's limited finance available. So if in this case, public finance could be used to de-risk specific investments in key businesses in the supply chain for private sector financiers, which would otherwise sit outside of traditional risk appetite. That would serve to unlock funding for organizations to cross the valley of death and bridge the gap to mainstream funding. And I think that this valley of death that often exists between grant funding and financing is a critical element of the next stage of economic growth. And we have the expertise, the structuring expertise and the policy expertise to be able to blend those two approaches to really decarbonize our other key sectors in the UK. Yeah, this is something we've seen talked about a lot in terms of yeah blended finance and international finance um, and how economies of scale can lower risk and unlock opportunities. And we've talked about that, I think, in terms of um, sending finance internationally. But a lot has been said recently about green finance here at home um, in the UK. 
uh, questions about whether we're adequately funding low carbon industries as the global stage becomes more competitive. So I wanted to get your views on how the Institute is looking at the UK's response to policies coming forward in the US and the EU to sort of unlock financial flows to these really quickly growing emerging sectors. That's a great question. And um, to, to put it in context, um, I've obviously many of the listeners will be aware of the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act, which is a very big um, fiscal stimulus program that's putting a lot of incentives um, and funding into, into the U.S. market. Um, I think that where the U.K. can come in and really um, – step into the global stage on its own is not going to be through purely a subsidy model, but through the ability to integrate uh, regulation and policy signals with those um, blended finance opportunities to to grow um, key key industries and to decarbonize them. And I think that regulatory response is one that we should also be seeing more of in Europe um, and certainly in, in Scandinavia as well. That makes sense. It's fairly obvious that we won't be able to outbend the US on subsidies. So you're saying that maybe a more nuanced approach and use our own specialisms and our own context would be the way to go. Absolutely. And I actually think that we need both of those responses for the global market to grow and and respond um, uh, to each other and and to have that system effect. I I think the other thing that's really important and is happening is we're seeing a shortening of supply chains. And uh, this is to do with a lot of the uh, post-COVID supply chain issues. But I think we can create an opportunity for that by really looking at where um, we can use our own industry and a and a very nuanced green trade policy uh, movement to, to help bring the UK into a competitive um, landscape with, with the US, Asia and Europe. Yeah, it comes back to what you said at the, at the beginning, that this is systems change and it's not just about one subsidy package to one intervention um, in one place. It's more complicated than that. So I think that's a great note to, to end on, Kelly, because I know we're running out of time for our call. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Sarah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me and I wish you a, a good rest of your day. Yes, a huge thank you once again to Kelly. And really, what would a climate finance podcast from EDB without the GFI's help? So thank you once again to them. So we're almost at the end of this episode. But if you will permit me a Wimbledon related pun, we do have more to serve up and one more interview for me to ace. After having some big broad looks at the climate finance ecosystem with Lloyds Bank and the GFI, Our third and final interview is on something of a more specific topic that is leveraging venture capital for more sustainable land use and agriculture system globally. Land use, forestry and agriculture accounts for almost one fifth of humanity's global annual emissions. But when we talk about venture capital for climate, it's often only about the clean energy transition, usually as well just energy generation. So here to help us add ag to the mix is Alistair Cooper, who is the head of venture at Kybus Capital. Apologies in advance if the audio quality for this discussion is not quite as great as the last one. We did record this um, on the fly in London, actually straight after our workshops on scope three emissions. So without further ado, here is that interview with Alistair in full. 
Yes, for this next part of the podcast, we're going to be looking at a slightly different type of the financial system um, and looking at finance flowing towards innovations um, that are creating the future of food and hopefully a much more sustainable future for food. Um, so I'm delighted to have on the line with me for this part of the episode, Alistair Cooper, who is the head of venture at Cibus Capital. So thank you very much for your time. How are you doing? Great. Th- thank you, Sarah. Very well, thank you. Pleasure to be here. No, thank you so much for coming on because I've had a look at your company's websites and really inspiring stuff. Our funds exist to channel capital towards companies that are charting the future of food. Our aim is to make all aspects of our company's activities more sustainable. Um, So big vision. Um, For those that aren't aware of your company, though, it'd be great to have a brief introduction um, in your words, the business and how it's working to achieve those those visions. Yes, certainly. Well, thank you for doing that the first part for me by reading that out. But um, Kibbers Capital is um, is a specialised uh, asset manager focused solely on investing into the uh, food and agriculture uh, value chains. Uh, Kibbers or, or, or Chibas, I should probably say, is the Latin word for food, uh, thereby the name and the title. And we're focused on this broken food system that the world has, has developed. Um, obviously, a, a perfect storm is is uh, addressing food production in terms of supply demand imbalance coming at a time of resource limitation. We built up a global food system dependent on fossil fuels, uh, whether it's artificial nitrogen or pesticides, etc., derived from fossil fuels. And now we're seeing unprecedented resource limitation, uh, not just fossil fuels themselves, but obviously things like clean water availability, fertile soil. And then you've got climate change putting the spanner in the works. And yeah, for us, the big problem to solve is that in the next 40 years, mankind will need more food produced than it has produced in the history of mankind, which is obviously pretty challenging, given uh, all I've just said. So for us, you know, the opportunity is all around uh, a technology revolution, which at last is starting to address this industry. Um, food and ag is uh, a kind of sleepy backwater in terms of technology integration, digital integration compared to other industries that have been massively disrupted in the last couple of decades. But at last, that's starting to change. Uh, And to get it to change, it's really all about risk capital availability. In the last five or six years, it's now become the fastest growing area of venture investing. And is that risk capital coming into venture, creating new disruptive technology opportunities that we feel is really driving the opportunity set? We call this the the, the food transition. And, And by that, I mean, trying to fix this broken food system. And it requires necessary capital of the scale of the energy transition we've all seen taking place for the last 20 years or so. So this is a massive challenge and our motivation is to help that transition by putting capital capital to work in this space. That That is our focus. At, at Kibbers Capital, we have um, really three investment strategies. One, we invest into large-scale operating real assets, um, not so low-margin soy or wheat production, but high-margin, healthy-for-you products, things like nuts, fruits, contained farming space, etc. cetera. Uh, olives uh, would be one of our big focuses. Secondly, we invest into mid-sized companies uh, right across the food value chain in terms of growth equity and uh, buyout-type investment. These are profitable companies already. And the companies that are very much sort of following that ethic I I explained earlier in terms of the the food transition, both in terms of health of the planet, 
uh, health, i.e. The, the ecosystem, but also human health uh, as well, uh, and, and moving everything towards sustainability and resource efficiency. And then the third strategy we have is a venture strategy, which I manage on a day-to-day -day basis. And that's focused on disruptive, impactful agri-tech and food tech. So really these young, exciting, fast-moving, cutting-edge new venture companies, which are sort of charting, I, I believe, the future in terms of developing these disruptive technologies that can then be integrated, obviously, at a much bigger scale, either via their own commercial growth or by integrated into bigger companies, obviously, that, that, that need that tech. And, and to a large degree, what we've seen, and you've seen this before in other industries, is that uh, big corporate world of big ag and big food has, has kind of seconded innovation and R&D down to the venture level. And actually, big ag and, and, and big food have started to invest very actively in these venture companies to buy a seat at the table, to buy knowledge, and then to buy these companies when they truly scale and commercialise. Great. Well, thank you so much for that big picture overview of both, yeah, the scale of the of the challenge and the top line um, strategy. I love that idea that this is essentially the next energy transition, just to paint a picture. Um, beyond that, I wanted to get your view on how exactly you can work with the portfolio to identify and implement the right solutions, given that this is a really complex um, challenge that requires, as you say, an unprecedented level of support. How do you identify and implement the right things in the right places? Yeah, just, just to sort of set the position, I should have said, you know, everything we do comes with a strong ESG, sustainable and impact type of ethic. 20% um, of our GP is owned by the Kibbis Foundation that donates to environmental and conservation charities. Um, myself and Rob Avery, the other founding partner, uh, we're both have been organic farmers for the last 20 years. So it's uh, it's not just lip service uh, in, in terms of uh, this, this impact and sustainable focus. So when we're looking at potential investments across those three strategies I mentioned, you know, clearly there's a lot of negative, negative selection at day one in terms of areas that are just not going to fit our, our mandate. We're not going to be investing in intensive sort of uh, livestock, you know, um, pig indoor pig production or chicken production etc uh, harvesting large-scale fish or um, uh, crustaceans from the sea etc um, so, so that negative selection happens immediately then you know in terms of the type of strategies and the differentiation that we're looking for clearly we're looking for companies that in some way are fulfilling uh, and addressing these macro problems that that, that the world is, is facing that, that that is a requisite the companies then need to be integrating some sort of new technology or to allow us to improve their output and efficiencies by integrating new technology to move them uh, in, in the direction that we seek. And we have our own specialist uh, ESG sustainable impact team with, within Kibbis. Uh, so we have our own specialist resource there. But we also then work with uh, outside specialist consultants as part of our due diligence process. So for really from day one, when we're looking at assessing uh, potential investment ideas, uh, we're assessing it ourselves to meet our own strict criteria. We're then bringing in specialist help um, as and when to help us with the diligence. Um, we work very closely with these uh, investee companies um, before we close the investment to establish key KPIs 
around uh, ESG and impact that we believe are relevant for the company. And we get a buy-in from those companies and in most cases manage to incentivize the management within those companies around those key impact sustainable ESG um, uh, KPIs. So the company will be expected to report on these to us on a quarterly basis. We then aggregate them up um, at a fund level uh, and report that obviously to all our investors on an annual basis. Um, For some of our investors, um, our Article 9 funds, so clearly we need to provide uh, the transparency necessary for them in terms of Article 9 uh, reporting, and that's something that, that we are fulfilling. That makes sense. And I think we could probably talk about yeah, engagement between investing and investor um, for yeah, another episode even, for a whole episode even. Um, but something you mentioned, Alice, there struck me. So you mentioned that requisite of the company either developing or implementing some new technology. And this is something that really interests me when I look at venture and when I look at um, companies that invest in, as you mentioned, the small disruptors, is that how much of the food systems transition is dependent on new technologies versus dependent on things we already have or even non-technological solutions like changes in process and mindset? Yeah, I think it's a combination of all of the above, if, if I'm being honest. Um, you know, according to the UNFAO, the global food system today is responsible for about a third of the world's greenhouse gas emissions. Um, on top of that, there's close to a billion people who are obese or grossly overweight. There's 850 million people who are malnourished and, and growing pretty fast. Uh, and then there's the devastation that man has caused to global global uh, ecosystems and biodiversity. So we've, we've got a lot to do and a, a lot to fix. So you know, from our point of view, I think what we would seek is to invest in technologies that encourage large scale land ownership and farmland to revert back to a more regenerative sustainable and organic direction, then to invest in new technologies that uh, can be leveraged to sort of make up the slack, should we say, in terms of uh, food and and nutritional output. Things like precision fermentation elevated by synthetic biology, which is an area of enormous opportunity, cellular meat production, uh, RAS aquaculture, etc. So there's a lot of new exciting technologies that are incredibly resource efficient that, that we believe will uh, allow uh, food production to move to a, a bigger scale for these growing urban populations, which which is going to be so necessary. Um, but you know, to address your question sort of specifically, I think it's going to be a combination of replacing artificial nitrogen use and uh, all pesticides with biological solutions uh, to that biocontrol, biofertilizer, and biostimulants. And there's a whole new uh, family of uh, technologies coming out to, to provide those type of solutions. Um, it's about disrupting livestock farming uh, and replacing it obviously with uh, a high value, uh, high nutritional output, alternative meat and dairy. And there's a whole new range of products, uh, I think, that are going to start acceler- accelerating take up of that product, which obviously is stalled to a degree in the Western world in the last 18 months or so. Um, we're particularly excited around the cellular meat uh, world and uh, a product range that's known as hybrid um, products, which are a mix of um, extruded plant protein and and cellular meat. Um, They'll be on the market within a year from now, uh, as an example. Um, So it's a combo of all the above. Got it. And I've been sent some information about some of the great tech that that you guys are um, 
supporting financially and as well as as you've mentioned um, alternative proteins something I noticed is that a lot of these are digital um, technologies um, that use data for things like driving efficiencies in production um, or reducing waste or reducing um, input so I wanted to get your view on the potential for essentially improved digital technologies data analytics AI to generate opportunities for a sustainable food system. Yeah, I mean, data in, in, in some form or other, I suppose, is utilised by all these new technology companies. And I think you you sort of put your finger on what is a, obviously a very hot area at the moment. All of us are thinking about uh, this new world of AI and how that's going to be leveraged. Um, I, I think the uh, the phrase people are using is uh, is data is the new new oil. Um, yeah, any any new AI is reliant on that quality data input to make the AI achieve you know, what it needs to achieve. So I think we're starting to look at this venture space slightly differently from before. Um, I think there are areas uh, which are going to be new AI is going to compress margins. And then there are areas around, you know, quality data collection, which are going to be leveraged by AI. AI and data manipulation, I'm struggling to see an area that we look at that's not affected by it. whether it's you know genomic data mining of you know microbial data sets at, at a scale that we've never been able to do before, the gut microbiome, the, the soil uh, microbiome, etc., uh, and and mining those those uh, data sets, genomic data sets for new information, for new active you know, peptides, etc., that we can use in 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 uh, new new production systems. Um, whether it's um, data uh, and its optimization to be used by you know, new areas of robotics. Robotics across food and ag is, is a massive focus for all of us. You know, robotics is going to be re- going to be used to reduce, for example, to, to replace big heavy machinery with small lightweight electric robots. It's going to be about using visual recognition uh, technology to um, collect data, optimize that data to reduce inputs. And it's going to be about um, minimizing labor use, um, given this problem we have about recruiting labor uh, to work on the farm. So your data is is very much highlighted across all of those strategies. I think I'm going to need data as the new oil on a cap or a t-shirt or something. Um, But Alistair, this is so much food for thought, pun intended. I could have spent this whole time on any of the innovations you mentioned, alternative proteins, robotics, um ai genome technology um but unfortunately that is all the time we do have left for this particular part of the podcast so thank you so much for giving us this behind the scenes look um at yeah investing to change the food system thank you so much great thank you sarah appreciate it yes back to me in the studio and a third and final thank you to alistair for guesting on this podcast so that's all in the way of special guest features that I have to bring you. So I think this is just about a wrap for episode nine of Sustainability Uncovered. We'll be back next month with another episode and hopefully back to full strength team wise. I hope to be joined in the studio by Luke and Matt um, and maybe also Jade. This next episode will be a bit of a lighter hearted one for our summer holidays. So it will have a bit of a sustainable summer theme, but that's all I can tell you for now. 
In the meantime, do register for our Sustainable Investment Inspiration Sessions. Once again, these are taking place online on the afternoon of Wednesday the 12th of July in the afternoon for those of us here in the UK. They're free to attend. Come along to hear more from Lloyds Bank and from the GFI, as well as some more great organisations, including Aldersgate Group and JP Morgan. For full information and to register, head to ed.net, then click events, webinars and masterclasses. So I hope to see as many of you online in a few days as possible. But until then, it's a goodbye from me. Goodbye. <laughs>